Welcome and thank you for tuning into the Bullseye Podcast. In this podcast, we'll be covering current affairs, pop culture topics, and trending technology news. Periodically, I'll be meeting with people to discuss their personal stories of hardship and success. For any topics that we cover or any guests that we have on our show, you'll find the bios and any other resources available. I'll make sure that they're posted with the podcast recording so that you can make use of them. Grief is very persistent and grief wants you to deal with it. So if you don't deal with it in this way, it will come out in another way mm-hmm. and it will make sure that you deal with it. Anybody who's had any, in really even a traumatic accident because that reaction in the body and, and the sort of stress of it can be very similar to losing someone to a suicide. It's really important and you may not be able to do it right away, but it's really important to deal with that grief and not tell yourself that if you just don't think about it and don't engage it, that it's going to be okay and it's going to go away because it won't. And it will figure out how to make you pay attention to it. And that might be in an actual physical element. Maybe you won't be able to feel like you can do your job anymore. Maybe you'll have a, a breakup, a relationship. There's all kinds of things that can happen. My dad struggled a lot. He probably wasn't technically diagnosed till he was, he moved to Toronto. And he was probably like in his mid-30s. But he'd, he had I told my mom that he pretty much felt plagued by these thoughts and these feelings his whole life but he really didn't have a an actual name for what he was going through which was like catatonic paranoid schizophrenia he did hear voices and they and i remember actually talking to a friend of my parents it's a lovely woman she still lives in brook valley coral (laughs) and her brother had had, uh, schizophrenia and i remember and this was probably shortly after kenny killed himself because I remember her reaching out. I'd spent a lot of time at their house. I was the same age as some of their kids. And she told me, because she'd also spoken to Kenny a number of times because of understanding from her brother's situation. And she said, you have to remember and realize that he, like he heard things and voices in all kinds of sounds. So if he was outside and he was say, lying down, listening to the trees and the wind in the trees, he actually would hear voices when he wasn't on medication that would say, basically tell them, Linda and Nikki don't love you. They don't need you. Linda and Nikki would be better if you weren't around. And he would share that those things with Coral. I don't know if he shared those kind of feelings with many other people. But he did try to do different things with therapy and, and also, of course, medication, which was more what it was about, taking medication. But he often felt very, kind of felt a little bit dead inside taking medication I know he felt like it took away his creativity he was was an artist he was a carpenter so he didn't he didn't really like the effects of the medication and also this is the 80s and I mean they were still doing shock treatment there's all kinds of no offense to anyone in the mental health community and working in that but there's a lot of barbaric things that happened mm-hmm. not that long ago that people have gone through and <clears throat> and almost as traumatic as going through the mental health issue. So thankfully things are changing around that, but he really, he struggled a lot, I think, with, okay, do I take the medication and don't feel like myself and don't feel connected, or do I not take the medication and hear voices? And which is the better choice? Right. And that's, wow. You could have a conversation about whether or not someone's got the capacity to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And that's why you end up with people being admitted and yep. and going into psychiatric wards and things exactly. like that because 
they pose a danger to themselves or to the community if they can't make the choice yeah. and, and it's the right choice. And it sounds like your father's or Kenny's choice was, it was, it, it seemed at least maybe superficially that it was really just, do I listen to the voices or do I feel empty inside? Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe people didn't really see what the true impact of that would be. Yeah. And we didn't know enough 40 years ago no. really to really maybe understand that and maybe push it. I, I know you were nine when he passed. Have you had a chance to talk to your mom about some of the signs that maybe she was able to reflect on and say, okay, maybe I could have done said this done this differently mm-hmm. or my mom and dad I, I did talk to my mom a little bit about this stuff and i've talked to her of course in the past through, mm-hmm. through the years and especially when i was having my own struggles with these things but they had a bit of a tumultuous relationship they were best friends they really loved each other they really cared about each other but it wasn't always easy for them to live together and to be together and i and, and honestly my mom would back this up this isn't me trying to throw my mom under a bus or anything like that but she probably wasn't always very kind to my dad my dad was lovely, sensitive, highly intelligent, highly creative, just wonderful, kind person. Not at all a, a typical, you're talking about toxic masculinity, he definitely <laughs> wasn't any of those things. And especially in the 60s and 70s and everything when he was coming of age and stuff, that was, who knows, that could have been a struggle, though he was a hippie, and I'm sure he fit in with <laughs> hippies very well. But he... He felt things deeply, and I know, like, I have a very clear memory. Again, we lived in different houses. I think this was when I was living in the A-frame with Kenny. But we would drive by a house that my mom was renting from people we knew. And she, my mom and dad weren't together, and she had a boyfriend. And he was a lovely person. He was important in my life, too. But sometimes, I, I remember this one driver, my dad, I think, had said, oh, we should stop by and see Linda. And then he just saw Bill's car in the driveway, and oh yeah you know let's go home and again it was like we didn't talk about it but I just remember that feeling like oh that that probably hurt him and again my mom and dad weren't together and she wasn't trying to hurt him in that case but I think he just felt that loss he was with somebody named Susan and she was lovely very nice to me but I know my mom and I don't have any memory of this so I guess she protected me well but my mom told me when I talked to her the other day that she actually was taking me to school we were probably coming from Maberly to go to the school in Brook Valley. And she actually saw Susan Kenny in a car. And Susan was driving and so pulled over and Susan Susan was like trying to tell my mom without letting me know that Kenny had actually cut himself mm. on his neck. And it was bleeding, it wasn't a huge gash, but it was bleeding. And and so my mom just immediately tried to shield me or put me down in the car. She didn't want me to see Kenny. Yeah. And she just, you know, basically her and Susan very hurriedly communicated that she was taken to the hospital and they drove away but I think before they drove away my mom like looked at my dad and said did you do this to yourself what did, what did you do to yourself but my dad would have moments of not being there essentially so he responded to her and I think he said something like yeah I guess so or but and I guess that's the catatonic part too. He just wasn't all there all the time. And that could have totally happened when he actually finally just made that decision to kill himself. And you, when you say not there, you mean mentally not present. Like yeah, he was just almost he, Yeah, dazed, confused, out there. Because through the years, my mom has told me about other things. Like we lived in Connecticut for a while. And they were actually groundskeepers for mm-hmm. a place called Camp Ahimsa. And it was through the winter, so it wasn't in use. But there was a beautiful house there. And, and uh, we lived there together. But I think he would get up in the middle of the night and just go for walks. 
and maybe sometimes maybe even remove his clothes and things like that and if someone stopped like she found him one time and he got in the car with her but she felt like if anybody had stopped he would have got in the car with him and he didn't really know exactly who she was so i think she worried about that stuff with him and i know i have a memory when we were sharing the same house, the three of us, in, in Brook Valley when we just moved there. And I remember waking up and, and calling my grandmother because she was down the road from us. Because yeah, it was probably like midnight or three in the morning. And I realized, like, my parents aren't here. And I guess I was eight then. I was <laughs> seven or eight then, I think. So I wasn't terrified, but I was like, a little nervous. And yeah, my dad had gotten up and left. And so my mom woke up and took the car and went to look for him. And again, he was just walking along the road. And this is out in the like country, so there's no lights or anything. So like even if our car had come, like he might he could have gotten hit or something because they might not have seen him. And again, he could might have just gotten into anyone's car. There was definitely like thinking about all that stuff. Sometimes think, yeah, she probably had a lot of stress on her worrying about him. Mm-hmm. And of course, like also his mom worrying about him and his sister and everyone else. Yeah, because she didn't he didn't always know what he was going to have those moments mm-hmm. and what triggered that and i don't honestly know what triggered that for him you know and, and if he had any kind of warning sign for that or if it came upon him it sounds like we've come a long way when it comes to dealing with mental health because i can tell you that if this would have happened in the last few years or the last decade or two mm-hmm. the treatment and the support and the help probably would have been significantly different yeah. for him which is good it's good to know yeah. that things have improved right it's it is like, good at the end of the day it, it doesn't bring kenny back um, but it's good to know that, that it's not in vain necessarily, yeah. you know, like the system recognizes and, and changes mm-hmm. and adapts and maybe it's a little too slow. Maybe there's not enough services out there. Maybe mental health services is too much part of a political game and needs to be more yeah. independent and agnostic in that way and, and be treated with more urgency and more importance. Mm. And it needs to be recognized that it's like physical health. Yeah. We all have mental health and it doesn't mean that we need to be committed. It yeah. doesn't mean that we're crazy. Right. But I think through most of history, there's been an understanding around physical health and you break your arm and yeah, there's certain things you, you do. You have it. a heart attack. There's yeah. certain things you do. Yeah. And mental health is tougher because if you have 10 people who have schizophrenia, if you have 10 people who are bipolar, well, you could have 10 different treatments. Yeah. So it's not like breaking your arm or heart attack in that sense. So it is more complicated. And just studying the brain is such a, an infant science and baby science. And I remember learning that like in psychology and stuff in university, that, that there was just so much that we still don't understand about the brain and how it works. But I do feel like we really have to recognize that we all have mental health. And it's not just some like weird, strange segment of the society and they go, oh, all those people with their mental health issues. Like when people would say, oh, that person's talking to themselves. They look like they're crazy. And I'm thinking, well, they probably are. Maybe we don't want to use that word, but they have mental health issues. They're not just talking to themselves because they feel like talking to themselves. So I do think like understanding is getting better, but just changing the conversation and changing that dialogue that people have where it's, oh yeah, I could suffer from mental health issues. And then maybe I get help for them, but then something else could happen. And I want to look at like the whole body. So mental health, one of the big problems is with mental health is that when you talk about mental health, it's almost synonymous with mental health issues. Yeah. So we can talk about having mental health or we can talk about whatever, but as soon as you say, oh, I'm whatever with mental health, people automatically assume that you've got problems yep. or whatever, which in itself should 
also be, I guess, an identifying thing. We Mm -hmm. should probably not ignore that. But instead, we don't treat it with the same level of urgency as we would if if a person broke their arm. Yeah. And and we really should. And you're right. It's it's so difficult. I could stub my toe. I know I just need to go put some ice on it. I can lay down. I'm good. Mm -hmm. But what do I do if I lost my dog or my marriage crumbles or Mm -hmm. I have financial issues or whatever? And I, I feel like I could... I feel like I should do an entire episode on mental health. Mm-hmm. No different than how a personal trainer would do episodes on how to work out. Yeah. And I think that would help to go a long way. And I think part of this will be helping shift the conversation or the culture and surrounding mental health and, and seeing mental health as more no different than getting a gym membership. It's yeah. the same thing. You got to do things constantly, daily, and frequently with persistence and have have exercises that you go through that help improve your mental health. And I know that all the different services that we're that I'll I'll list out and also communicate here, I know that this is their their focus, right? Their mm-hmm. focus is about is about exercising your brain and your mental health and well being. Yeah. Yeah. So how I know that you said that after you lost Kenny, your dad, and you were nine, you started to deal with it more when you were in your teenage years and having mm-hmm. more conversations with your mom and going through therapy and stuff. I've never lost a parent. I've lost a grandparent who maybe felt like a parent. And I know that I cried and it was hard and I still think about them and I care about them. Mm -hmm. I could not imagine losing a parent. Yeah. What's it been like for, I don't want to give your age away. (laughs) That's fine. I think you gave away enough when you said (laughs) you were nine and it was 82, but (laughs) how is it like, what is it like on a, on a, on a daily basis what do you what does it mean to you like right now when you think about it yeah like I, <clears throat> i'm not the one who lost my dad and my eyes are welling up mm-hmm. i know that you've had years to deal yeah. and cope and but but what does it mean to you it's, it's honestly very much part i believe of the fabric of myself of who i am of how i got down the road which i'm still of course figuring out because I would love to actually be doing like, actual paid work in this because I do feel like I have knowledge about it mm-hmm. and not just doing volunteer stuff. But yes, I'm like my dad too. I'm probably more like my dad in personality than I am like my mom, which was part of our struggles too through being a teenager. But I think about my dad, if not every day, and for a long time I definitely thought about him every day, almost every day. I actually wear a ring and... He left very few things when he died, but I have his guitar, I have a mandolin that he had, a belt, and I have this ring. And for a long time, I just had it in my jewelry case or whatever. And I actually was going to give it to someone they always with in the past. And I'm glad I never did that because it might have been awkward to uh, to get it back from him. And the the ring actually that I have for my dad is really important to me and I actually wear it I can't remember exactly when I started wearing it it's definitely it's probably been like 15 years or something I'd say if not a bit more and I wear it pretty much every day and it's particularly important to me now because yes it was my dad's ring it's a beautiful piece of turquoise but it was actually created for my dad by my uncle my mom's oldest brother who is no longer alive but he was a a very talented jeweler and then he had an aneurysm and it you know, that made it very difficult difficult for him to make jewelry after that. 
but he having it, I can look at it. And I do think of Kenny when I look at my ring. I also think of my uncle David and they were both my, my mom's brothers really loved my dad and felt close to him. So it brings up all of that. So I, I pretty much, yeah, think about my dad almost every day. I have talked to him in the past, especially if I've had issues with my mom. Sometimes I've, and sometimes it's things like, why did you have to leave? Why did you have to kill yourself? And you left her with me? I'm like, really? Can you help me out here? Can you help me deal with her? But I do feel like he watches over me to some extent. I feel sometimes I've gotten guidance from him. And really what I tell anybody, if they're not feeling conflict about this or, or not understanding how it works with memory and everything is with my clients in SSP is that you will always remember that person. Anyone who says, oh, you'll stop thinking about them or you'll forget about them or whatever. Like they clearly haven't lost anybody. And I know that sometimes I do have people who are surprised because I was nine. So it's not like I was two. If you're really a baby or really young, then of course that memory might be a little more fuzzy. But I was old enough to have really good memories of my dad. And also I spent a lot of time with him, just me and him. And you just don't forget that presence. And what happens with grief and sadness is it gets softened. It's like when you find rocks or glass by a beach in the ocean or a lake and they have soft edges. If you find beach glass, at one point in time, that beach glass was jagged and it was broken, but the waves and the sand and everything have smoothed it out. And that's what grief and loss can feel like. It's still there, it's still poignant, but you're not going to, it's not gonna feel as raw forever. And that's what I'll tell people, especially when the loss is very recent, because I do ha also have people coming and talking to me Maybe it's been two weeks, maybe it's been a couple months since the loss, and they, oh, is this always going to be this raw and this rough? No, it does, it does smooth out, but you don't forget the person, and you don't not think about them, but you also think about hopefully the whole person and not just that traumatic loss. You're going to think about the traumatic loss more at the beginning. It's going to be more present in your mind, but mm -hmm. eventually you re just are thinking about the whole person and their whole life. What are some things that you did in your teenage years that helped you maybe cope a little better? Cause I know, like you said, happened when you were nine, mm -hmm. you didn't really start to really deal with it until mm -hmm. you were in your teenage years. Yeah. So you probably had arguments and fights and some disagreements and some anger issues and stuff like that for the first few years. And then you yeah. started to see a therapist Yeah. and then you started to practice some things to help cope or deal. Yeah. But what one or two things do you remember like specifically that kind of helped you smooth the rock a little bit? For me, having some kind of therapy, and I probably honestly didn't really get proper therapy till like many years later. I did have therapy brief when I was in my teens, but I think it was almost more like a kind of crisis intervention because I was, like I definitely walked around the city and looked at bridges and stuff and was like, not necessarily making a plan to jump off, off of them, but I definitely was fairly depressed. And you know, I guess hiding it pretty well because I was a good student and all that. I don't think a lot of people in my life really knew. And I don't know, I must have said something to my mom or something and she must have seen something where her sort of alarm bells went up. And, she, and it also always has been difficult for her if she sees similar patterns of behavior that she saw in Kenny yeah. and me. That's, that's very triggering for her. But for me, I've read and I know I've heard in the past like anger 
or sorry, depression is anger when you turn it on yourself. And I don't have a really easy time with anger. I don't even like if someone's angry on the street and they're yelling at people. It makes me feel uncomfortable. My partner and I don't really fight. I'm not really an angry person. But I think because of that, it was easy for me to fall into depression because I was just, I was churning whatever kind of anger inside because I really don't have memories of feeling angry at Kenny, but I'm sure I was, you know, really angry at the beginning. Bits and pieces through the years since he's died, yes, I can say, oh yes, I was angry then or in this moment, but I'm sure I had a lot of anger when he first died and I just don't even remember it. And I think I just turned a lot of that stuff inwardly and probably blamed myself too, which I think a lot of people do when you lose someone to suicide. You think, oh, what did I do? Did I do something? Not my fault. Yeah, did, yeah. You know, was I not a good daughter? All that kind of stuff. But talking to someone, I also was really lucky. My mom was a single parent. She pretty much been a, a single parent in a way, even when my dad was still alive, just because of the relationship. And she was always very invested in me and my life. But she had to work a lot. And, uh, and I was very lucky. I had a wonderful family. My grandmother always taking care of me. But I also had a lot of close friends. And I had people who were almost like big sisters. So I had a woman, and unfortunately she's no longer alive, but her name was Rosemary, and she really loved me. She really saw me, and I don't have in my life a lot of people throughout my whole life that I really feel like really recognize me and see me for who I am, and she really did. And so that was very helpful to have her in my life, and that helped to soften a lot of that stuff. And when I started with the SSP, I, I didn't actually know about the survivor support program I had never heard of it I'd never looked for any kind of help or any sort of support groups or anything like that I guess I thought I had to deal with this stuff on my own but when I started with a distress center we did the phone lines you do the training and they said after a year then you can if you want you can do survivor support so as soon as I found out that was about talking to people who had lost someone to suicide and traumatic loss we also do homicide support I was like that's for me and as soon as my year's up <laughs> I'll be training for that. And, and even though it had been a long time, they did check in with me and everything. Like, are you going to be okay? Is this, I think after my first sessions that we did, which it's eight sessions we do with clients, I think the manager checked in with me just to make sure, okay, are you okay? Is this too hard? But a lot of time had passed and it was good. And, and sometimes I, get, I do get paired up with people who have lost their fathers or the fathers have hanged themselves. So sometimes he does specifically pair me up with a client so that I can bring my story. And it's different than traditional therapy because you actually are talking about your story too. Not always, because it really depends what the client wants from you, but they often, because there's two of us, co-peer counseling together, and often they will say, they know one of us is a survivor, one of us is a non-survivor, as they say. They often will say, okay, who lost someone to suicide? And they'll, you can tell them. And and sometimes I'll talk a little bit about my experience, my yeah. story. Not every client wants to hear it or appreciates it, but a lot of them do. Yeah. Do you find that helps you as well, being able to talk about it? And I think so, yeah. I think it just, I tell people, I really feel, and I totally respect if someone is private, if someone does not want to share things. There's so much stuff now even say about fertility and everything. I have so many friends who have struggles with that. that. There are so many things you don't necessarily want to share and it may make you feel vulnerable or you're just not, you're not that kind of person. You are more private. But I've always been a little bit more like, what you would get I'm an open book so I'm naturally like that mm -hmm. and I do find that talking about it helps and I think that it really normalizes it more and yes we don't want to make it so we're detensitized and we don't 
like suicide doesn't have an impact on us because we want to try to prevent. But at the end of the day, if someone has decided that they are going to take their lives, they are probably not going to tell anybody. And unless they have attempt and it's failed, you probably won't really know exactly how they're feeling. And there isn't much you can do to stop them. You can try to see some warning signs for sure. But usually if people have made that decision to kill themselves, they're they're pretty dedicated to that and the they're smart enough and know enough that they don't want to share that with anybody. Right. And sometimes, yes, it's total cry for help for sure. But a lot of times, and that can be really hard for the survivor because you feel like, oh, I should have seen things. How could I have stopped it? So let me just tell them like it's that's very difficult because even if you're with somebody all the time, you can't be with them 24-7. You can't watch them. It's not your fault. So they will, like, if they want to do something, they will find a way to do That can be really tricky and, you know, a difficult thing for people to accept. But I do believe that t- just talking about it and just, like, correcting people, and sometimes that's hard. I, I remember being at a restaurant, and I think I was with some friends or my ex-boyfriend or something, and the waiter just kept on saying, I mean, I think he was flirting with my boyfriend, to be honest, but, but he kept on saying stuff like, Oh, just had worst hair day, and I could just kill myself. And this kept on. Mm. This is up ten times, and finally, I just said, "I know you're not doing this on purpose. I know you don't know me or who we are." But I said, "I actually lost my dad to suicide, and if I could just ask you not to keep saying you're going to kill yourself because, like, you have a bad hair day or something." And and I'm really not trying to do this to make you feel bad because, of course, he was totally taken aback and felt horrible but I think sometimes you almost have to remind people of that that this isn't because in a weird way when we talk sometimes in our counseling things and just when we have survivor conferences and things like that people will say it's suicide is so interesting because it's very macabre in many ways and it is taboo but it's also fascinating to people people often want to ask someone who's lost someone to suicide how do they kill themselves did you find the body what happened? Like they want, it's like a murder scene. They want to know those details, but they don't necessarily want to talk to the person about the grief and about things leading up to it. And also it can just be totally like, no, we can't talk about that at all. No one wants to hear about that. It's totally, people get asked all the time when they've gone through that loss. Well, are you going to be like normal again? Are you going to be yourself? Cause you haven't been really fun. And I'll always say to clients, I, I really feel like our society gives about six to eight months maybe to grieve. Maybe. And sometimes less. And after that, you should be like, you should be feeling better and doing better. And guess what the reality is? It could take, it could it take, take decades. Dec- and really nobody needs that pressure on them. <laughs> they need to be like back up and running and their usual lovely self because maybe your whole perspective has changed. Yeah. And maybe just like anything traumatic, maybe you now look at those things differently and you don't lose your mind about some small thing happening that maybe you did before. Maybe that totally stressed you out. Maybe you're like, I lost someone to suicide. So now my whole perspective and the way I look at everything is all different. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not going to go back to what it was before. And that's change from trauma. Yeah. Change from trauma. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about specifically when it came to the passing of Kenny or specifically to your situation, what you had gone through or what you had done to cope or anything that you wanted to add at this point? I think for me, I just am happy to be able to share this story because my dad 
was an amazing person. He means the world to me, meant the world to me. And I don't want people to have to go through this. It's a terrible thing to lose someone to suicide. So I do want and hope that the more it is talked about and the more information is out there, that people can find different ways to look for help, either for themselves or for others. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, if you, are, if you yourself are feeling anything, it doesn't even have to be suicidal ideation, but if you're just not feeling yourself, reach out. If you're working for a company, hopefully they have EAP, which is a free service, which is great. Or you might be able to ask friends. They do a great thing, which is the blue book that is basically, and you know, instead of information about stores and everything, it's information about counseling and mental health. So 211. So there are a lot of resources out there, and I think that's important for people. And I'm sure we'll be talking a bit more about that. But at the end of the day, yeah, I, I love my dad. I miss him. I wish he hadn't made that decision to take his life. Sometimes I wonder, though, how my life would be different were he alive. Or how or how you could be different, because yeah. you said that this is something that's shaped who you are today. Mm-hmm. How could you have been different? Maybe I would have been a totally different person. It's so hard to know, and sometimes I think about things like, yes, I don't have kids, and I probably won't be married, even though I'm very happily partnered <laughs> with somebody. But I do think about those things, or I have in the past of, mm. oh, if I had a, had a kid he wouldn't have met my baby or he wouldn't have walked me down the aisle had I gotten married. Mm -hmm. But anybody who's lost a parent, whether they've taken their life or died in another way, of course, will be going through those things if they haven't reached those milestones yet. Well, those are the kinds of things I sometimes think about, but it's not, they're not the end of the world kind of things. Mm -hmm. They're just sort of realities you deal with. Thank you for sharing your story. I know that we've talked briefly about that a couple of times in the six years almost that I've known you but to go into deeper detail not just about the story and about what happened but also how it impacted you how it shaped you how you dealt with it coped with it and also the fact that you now support people who also go through loss and that's a wonderful thing that you do and I love that uh, about you you're a great person probably a lot like your dad Mm -hmm. cared about people cared about things Mm -hmm. and was very passionate about taking care of things. So it was nice to to have that conversation come out. And I hope that this opens up for people to know that they can also talk about it with their friends, their family. If you happen to know anybody who also has gone down this path before and maybe wants to also have a platform or have a conversation, I'm, I'm open to having a conversation with them as well. Before we move on to resources that are available, I wanted to touch a little bit on the LGB and suicide. Oh, yes. I don't have a lot of information again because I just feel like society is just starting to wrap their head around the fact that these people exist and also have rights and services and they need special support because they're they're not different humans, they just go through different things and yeah. a lot of the same stuff that can that can push them down in the depression lane are similar things that men and women go through just slightly different for example if you're somebody who's not as comfortable with yourself and you're in high school and maybe you're a male who wants to be a female or are Mm -hmm. a female and wants to go through the transition sexually transitioning yourself that can be traumatizing when you're going through high school i don't know if you remember high school but i do and Mm -hmm. children are unforgiving 
Oh, kids are unforgiving yeah. and unwavering when it comes to bullying. Yeah, and just... and when you have somebody who is gay or transgender or lesbian or whatever, and, and they're a target, mm-hmm. it can be very difficult for people to get through. I'm going to say middle school, so mm-hmm. grade six, seven, eight, yeah. but really high school yeah. is is going to be the most traumatizing part of their life. And I'm glad that we're normalizing that mm-hmm. because it. I'm saying that I'm saying LGBTQT plus like mm-hmm. the the whole acronym. Yep. We're normalizing it. It's becoming part of society. We're accepting it as a whole, and I think that in itself will then reduce the bullying. It'll never mm-hmm. go away. Yeah, I'm a white male. I was bullied in school for yeah. stupid stuff, whether yeah. it be socioeconomical status. It doesn't matter. Sure. You will get bullied. Yeah, but. Hopefully, the more we normalize this, the less it becomes a target. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm not saying bullying is right in any level, but the the more we can reduce it, the better. So just a few things. So I, I got some statistics. The Trevor Project was one. Mm-hmm. Also, the Center for Suicide Prevention, which is mm-hmm. just a, the generic center for suicide prevention. Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst young people, ages 10 to 24. Mm-hmm. LGB youth seriously contemplate suicide at least three times the rate of heterosexual youth, likely directly related to bullying. I would, I'm yeah. willing to bet. All of the suicide attempts made by youth, LGB youth suicide attempts, were almost five times as likely to require medical treatment than those of the heterosexual youth. So even the attempts were yeah. were um, more severe. Suicide attempts by LGB youth and questioning youth are four to six times more likely to result in an injury, poisoning, or overdose that requires treatment. National study has 40% of transgender adults uh, reported having made a suicide attempt and 92% of those individuals reported having attempted suicide before the age of 25. 92% mm. of transgender people have attempted yeah. suicide before the age of 25. Which is yeah, really awful. It's an awful stat to read. I totally believe it though and if you are looking at that example especially because there's been so much more information about transgender in the recent years really like people are questioning how they feel i have never had that feeling i've always felt connected that i'm a a woman but obviously that must be very traumatic to feel like you're born in the wrong body Mm. people are making decisions so anybody who is like says to people oh like you should be able to switch back or whatever. Why would anyone put themselves in that situation? To be bullied, to feel horrendous, whatever. No, obviously this is an important thing that they're feeling. And the fact that our world is just, unfortunately our world is very heteronormative, essentially. Mm -hmm. So really, if you're looking through that lens of everything being heterosexual and that anything that isn't that is the other then that can be very isolating and just people can feel disenfranchised. They can just, because they're not being viewed through what is considered normal. And really think we just need to to change that. Like who cares? Like why do people care so much if someone's gay or lesbian or transgendered? That is someone's truth. The people should just be able to accept that and not have such a stringent view of gender and male, female. But I think for a lot of kids, like we knew, we knew growing up, but yeah, like there's bullying and also you're just questioning things. You don't really know who you are. Mm-hmm. So then you got to add all that stuff to it too. Like you're confused enough just as a teenager and then you yeah. got all, all those things. And it's great that there's so many more supports than there were before. Like I definitely went to high school with kids. I don't think I had anybody I knew who was transgendered except when I was younger. I think I knew somebody who was, but definitely gay, lesbian, but my high school wasn't accepting of that. So they didn't come out until after high school. There's, there has been a lot of change and that's really good. 
But there's must be so much of questioning for someone, and also with their family is not accepting. If you know that you're going to tell your mom and dad or your grandmother or whomever that I'm gay, I'm lesbian, guess what? I'm transitioning to be a male, I'm transitioning to be a female, and your family's going to say, that's it, move out, we don't love you, you're not accepted, go die, whatever. Yeah, you can see why there might be higher suicide rates and statistics for those groups because that's a lot of people's reality they're yeah. literally going to be hated by their family maybe not their friends if they have if they've collected a core group of support the friends know but family right? is so, hard yeah. your family's going to say yeah you can no longer be part of this family you can't You're live disowned. in this house yeah if someone's like 15 16 and they're being told yeah sorry you got to leave which is why the number of lgbtq plus whatever is highly like that they take up the a a large portion of the homeless Mm -hmm. population yeah especially under the age of 25 that's traumatizing so not only do they end up on the streets they they are ostracized by their family they're bullied Mm -hmm. teased kicked like the whole the whole uh, the whole kit and caboodle no wonder they struggle and i feel like because that percentage of people isn't big it doesn't get the attention it deserves. So if 92% mm-hmm. attempt to kill themselves before 25, mm-hmm. but it, transgender only takes up a small part of the 3% of the population, yeah. then the number's so small, it, it doesn't become a problem. But the yeah. 92%, regardless of how many, yeah. that's, that's an that's issue. a big deal. That's serious. That's a big deal. And I don't know if there'll be more research about this group, but I know when I took addiction studies back when I was doing my social work degree, so this was like in the early, mid-2000s, we actually talked a lot about Indigenous youth. Right. And even like really young kids too, like 6, 10, like basically sniffing glue, doing different things, because I remember my prof was like, because people were so horrified about it, my prof was like, they're looking around going, this is my life. Like, I have to live here. I have to live somewhere that doesn't have clean drinking water, which they still don't. I have to have this horrible life. Maybe I'll just do something in in my life. Right. And I'm sure there'll be, especially with all the stuff with residential schools and all the graves being found. Yeah. There'll be more information about that because that's a huge group, too. That suicide is really impacted on. And I don't know anything about LGBT necessarily with indigenous because they have a whole different way of looking at it with two spirit and they're much more accepting. Mm -hmm. But that would be interesting stats as well to see in that particular um, population. I, I, the good news is that while I was doing my research, the, the government websites that led me to a lot of these secondary pieces of information are starting to become very heavily informative when it comes to the LGBT mm-hmm. and also Indigenous. That's good. Lots of information that's there really good. because I think that they realize that that's, those are the homes that are on fire right now. Yeah. They've been on fire for a long yeah, time. Yeah, long time. But it's they're the ones that are forefront right now. Yeah. And so a lot of energy, a lot of time is going into creating resources and programs to support that. But I feel like much, I feel like this about the government with a lot of things. It's always too late yeah. when the government gets involved. Yeah. It requires something extremely far one way or the mm-hmm. other before they'll actually do anything. Exactly. So they're doing it now, but it's in an overreaction yeah. state, which is good because it means yeah. they need lots of good things. But I just feel like it's too late for yeah. that. Let's go and fix this. Let's do it the right way. Let's get these people treated like humans. Mm-hmm. And you need to be, re- you need to not try to be reactive and actually be 
proactive. Yeah. And that for sure is a, a great fault of probably most governments. Most. You know, yeah, I would most say, of right? They're probably waiting yeah. until the house is burning down. Like, oh, okay, let's bring in the fire department now. Yeah. So let's that not we, teach that them we, any fire prevention. That we undercut yeah. last year. <laughs> yeah. Because we don't need them. No. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think the indigenous, the LGBT, the, I think those are such important topics and such important groups of people that I think that they deserve their own mm-hmm. episode. They really yeah. do. And um, not to say that men and women don't, but we've dominated everything for yeah. so long that yeah. one episode's good for men and women, a little bit of LGBT, a little bit of ind- indigenous. We'll come back to it and we'll just do a really good episode on, on those. So some of the LGBT uh, warning signs, we've already, de- we've already talked about them, bullying, mm-hmm. physical violence, rejection, lack of support from parents, yeah. mental illness, predisposition to being depressed or anxiety. So all of these things, body image anxiety. So that, mm-hmm. that can be a couple different things. That can be if you feel as though you're too big or too small, mm-hmm. but also if you're a female in a male's body or mm-hmm. Male and a female's body that that whole dysmorphia kind oh, of yeah. that all of that can That's play huge. a huge thing too. And there are again an access to lethal means as well. So I'm not sure if a, if a male or female in the LGBTQ plus kind of realm is going to be more or less likely to select a, a more lethal option. I'm not sure how that mm-hmm. kind of plays out. But as we learn more, the statistics will be more readily available. And I think the most important thing is that we just need more. We need more services for them and more help, definitely. Warning signs. I I can't even repeat the same warning signs. They're all the same. Mm -hmm. It's all the same stuff. At the end of the day, the the nice thing about all of this, the silver lining is is that we're all human. We all struggle the same way. We all have the same signs to look for. And we all just want to be loved and cared for. And and the same message that you and I keep saying is, don't offer support and walk away. Yeah. Give them support yeah. give them and help support. them. Yeah. And give them a, an opportunity and, and a place to share their stories, especially with transgendered and gay and lesbian youth and the indigenous. Because as you pointed out before, the colonizers, us white folks, have had a lot of time and a lot of space to tell our stories. So we need to be turning it more to other communities. And I think just like people want to share their stories most of the time, even when it's difficult, people want to share their stories. So in, in listening to people's stories, you do learn more about them, but also like how to help people. And it also reminds us of that. And what are, what are people going through? And and you hear the stories and you put it on a platform and then it becomes not normalized but in, in, informative mm-hmm. and now when you can't hide away you can't be like a, an ostrich you put your head in the sand and yeah. i don't see anything and just like claim I, ignorance so i didn't yeah, know that i didn't know oh, that well i didn't know they felt that way let's help everyone know let's give people mm-hmm. a platform to tell their story so that people can listen and hear the kind of stuff people go through yeah so how so we've talked a lot about all the different various <laughs> groups and their their risks their percentages but the most important part of all of this is how do we help someone who's in a crisis? Mm-hmm. We talk honestly. We talk responsibly. We talk safely about suicide. And we have to listen mm-hmm. genuinely, show concern, and give people our time. I, th- I feel like we owe it to the community. It's almost, I don't want, I do not want to go down this path right now, but it's like the vaccine conversation. Mm-hmm. Community immunity. We talk about yeah. herd immunity, but community immunity. And we talk about, and the reason why I bring that up is because when you, also when you have a child, usually it takes a village. Yep. When you have people who are killing themselves, being bullied, dying, committing suicide, bullying other people who are different or whatever, 
we have a responsibility as a community to fix that. Yep. And it doesn't have to be people that you love, care about, family members, friends. It can be colleagues, coworkers. Totally. If you see something or somebody struggling, listen and show concern. Yep. Really, just it, they're another human being. Like, yep. give them love. What's stopping? Talk with them, reassuring them that they're not alone. Like, mm-hmm. you've said this already. Like, you're not alone. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not the first yeah. person on this planet to have postpartum depression. That's right. Talk to other people about yeah. it. And it's okay. Yeah. You're not burdening anybody. Mm-hmm. And if and, you are, you're talking to the wrong people. Yeah. And don't think or worry that in talking to someone about suicide that you're going to make them think of suicide. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of parents who might be out there might be thinking, well, I can't talk to my kid about suicide because maybe they've never had that thought or that idea. Like, trust me, like suicide is a very... It's out there in the universe. Yeah. Even if people individually haven't had those thoughts themselves, they know about suicide. They, yeah. they have seen it in a movie or whatever. So don't be like concerned that, oh my God, I'm going to plant some seed and then that person is going to be, oh, that's what I should do. I should kill myself. It's, oh no, you're not giving them an idea. You're allowing them to share those feelings and thoughts where they don't feel like they're being, they might be ostracized, they might be totally misunderstood or people are going to shrink back and be like oh i don't want to talk about that Mm -hmm. oh that's too much that's that's really heavy that's intense i can't handle that i just want to talk about surfacey stuff i almost feel like you you we talk about sexual education in in Mm -hmm. elementary and in high school i almost i i think they talk about suicide a little bit but probably more like an awareness program that's over here in the Mm -hmm. corner where i feel like it needs to be front and center yeah and it, it's an important part of life, mental health, and everyone struggles. Every single yeah. person, I don't care if you're at the top of the food chain or at the bottom of the food yeah, chain, you struggle struggles. and everyone needs the same love, care, and support. So help is available. Yeah. 911, obviously, yeah. if you're in an emergency mm-hmm. situation, you feel yes. like whatever, somebody's going through something, you're not sure what's happening, mm-hmm. call 911. The last thing that they're going to do is, is tell you, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be calling us. Kids help phone line, uh, 1-800-668-6868. You can text, you can chat, mm-hmm. you can call them. We know that our youth are a, a, a big part of suicide and the numbers and the statistics. So there's a complete help helpline. Call them. There's mm-hmm. a trans lifeline. Yep. I, did, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, 877-330-6366 specifically designed for people who are in the trans community. Mm -hmm. They know exactly what you're going through. They'll be able to talk to you. They'll be able to understand you. They'll be able to have empathy. They'll be able to hear you. Your voice will be heard. It'll be easier. Not that the 911 people aren't trained for it. Not that the kids helpline isn't, but it's like a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need a specialist. Yep call that line too. You yeah. can use that as well. Hope for Wellness, they have a helpline at 855 I'm going to post all these phone numbers on my mm-hmm. on description of the podcast. There's also an Indian, resi- they call it Indian Residential um, Schools mm-hmm. Crisis Line. So that was recent as everyone knows. So they came up with that. I'll post that. Can- There's Canada Suicide Prevention Service. There's also a Quebec uh, residence one as well. So mm-hmm. I'll provide all of those. There's tons of programs for women. There's the Women's Center of, and then literally you can Google and put in any city. They mm-hmm. have tons of them around. Uh, there's CanadianWoman.org.org. For men, there's BuddyUp.ca. Mm-hmm. There's HeadsUpGuys.org. Org. Org. Mm-hmm. Org. <laughs> yeah. There's MensMindsMatter.org. Mm-hmm. There's Mo- Movember. Right. Com, which everyone has thankfully been much more involved with in the last decade or so. There's me, men and families dot 
org as well. And then for the LGBTQ, there's the trevorproject.org, which is mm-hmm. a big one. I'm going to stick with that one for now. I think there are other ones. I will post them in the description of the, the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And then for youths, the main one I found was youth.gov. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty straight up one to go to. They've got lots of different topics, including youth uh, suicide and prevention. I, I put big brothers and sisters in there because yep. I was part of that program, both as a, a small and a big. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it plays a significant role in, in youth development when and if there's traumatic events that happen in a, finan- fi- in a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think that if anybody can get involved into that, you, you'll always have uh, a big sister or a big brother that will be there for you that can yes. help you and, and transition through family changes and yeah. stuff. So I did put that in there as well. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this. I'll just add to your list. So the Distress Center of Toronto, and there are different distress centers in different cities. So that is 416-808-HELP, I believe. You can double check that. Make sure I've got the correct. (laughs) And then the SSP, the Survivor Support Program, is a unique program as part of that. There are often support groups where people can meet and talk to other survivors of suicide. So there might be like a parent-focused one or a teen-focused one. And we do that as well. After we do the individual sessions, they all are invited to do group sessions, which some people choose to and some people don't. But it is unique in that they do the one-on-one with the two counselors. It's a specified program, and it's all volunteer-run. And it's really, yeah, it's invaluable. And it's great. One of the benefits of COVID, even though sometimes it's a little tricky for people to connect over Zoom and virtually, is that they can meet with people and talk with people who are at all different parts of the country and even different parts of the world, where before it was just people in Toronto. Yeah, so it used to be just in Toronto and in person most of the time. Now it's virtual as well. Yeah. That's great. Is there any other shout outs that you want to give? No, I don't think so. That's it? No, I think that's it. Okay. Thank you again. This has been amazing. I know that we've known each other for a long time now, and this probably seems weird with microphones in our face (laughs) because I I can't tell you how many times we've had family family events where we've had conversations about things. And I like that. Uh, I like that we were able to take our ability to have a good conversation, put a mic in front of us yeah. and talk about something really serious and obviously something close to you. So thank you again for sharing. You're welcome. I love this and uh, I hope that we can have you on the show again. Yes, I would love to be on the show again. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks.